Welcome to The Draft Board, where hosts David Song and Tyson Workington tackle the topics that you want to hear. From the rink, to the turf, to the court, anything and everything, this is The Draft Board. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Draft Board. Once again, we hope that you guys have been having a, a great month. And uh, we're excited to be back with you after another uh, hiatus here. Uh, Tyson, how you been doing lately? Been doing good. It's nice to have the uh, sunshine out, be able to get some warm weather. Unfortunately, it's been raining for the last few days, but you know what? I'm doing pretty well. It's doing pretty good. And certainly the playoffs in both the NBA and NHL have been heavily on our minds and our schedules. I'll say that right now. I Absolutely. Last Saturday, I watched three NHL playoff games in one day. We had Lightning Panthers, Islanders Penguins, and Leafs Habs, and I watched every single one of those games. And after that day, I thought to myself, you know, maybe sports journalism is a good fit for me. <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> well, before we get started, though, with today's episode, which, of course, as you folks can imagine, a lot of playoff talk out of both the world of hockey and the world of basketball, we want to give a shout-out to a couple of people that have really supported us uh, in, in smaller ways, but nonetheless very, very uh, significant ways, I think, specifically for us as a young podcast. And one of those is Mr. Graham Bessie. Now, if you don't know that name, you will. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you, you may or may not, but he, he, he's a good guy. This is a guy that I went to junior high, and high school with, and he is the gentleman that is responsible for making the new intro and outro that you will have heard on our last episode. You'll hear on this episode, and you're also going to hear it in every episode until we, well, get a perhaps a, a more fancy one, but... <laughs> You know, Tyson, the funny story is, is that Graham and I, we didn't just go to junior high and high school together. Hockey was literally the reason we became friends. And oh, I nice. have a memory of, I was in grade 9 in 2010, and the weeks leading up to the Olympic hockey tournament on home soil, I still remember that Graham and I were in the same junior high drama class, and at one point in time, we just started talking. And at that point, because I wasn't, I wasn't a sports guy yet, Jerome McGinley, Sidney Crosby, the only two players I've ever heard of, and so I asked him, essentially, who else on Team Canada is good? Because I've heard we, we, we're Canadians. We have a really good team, right? He told me about Rick Nash. He told me about Chris Pronger and Duncan Keith and Jonathan Taves, who was 20 years old at that point in time. Wow, has, has it flown by. Yeah. And essentially, for those of you out there that don't know my story, that hockey tournament and that Olympic Games in general, Vancouver 2010, is what made me into a sports fan and it it changed my life as we as we know now for for me sitting here and for us to have stayed in touch on Facebook I mean social media can be a good thing sometimes and <laughs> we uh, started texting each other again a few months ago and I introduced him to my podcast uh, he really enjoyed it shout out to you Graham we appreciate your listenership and he took took uh, his own time to make us an intro and an outro and he did not charge us for it so mm -hmm. we want to thank you very much for that Graham we hope you continue to enjoy mm -hmm. the content that we're putting out for you and for everyone else that 
pardon me for everyone else that tunes in and thank you so much for your help yeah it's been really great and uh you know it's always good to have people come alongside us and, and help us out whenever we can and yeah we're we're grateful for Graham for that Someone else I'd like to give out a shout out to is my other friend, uh, Kirsten Korsrud, who also took some of her time to create a, a starter logo uh, for our, our podcast. We don't have one yet. We are excited to show that off for you on our Instagram account. And again, like it's very, uh, it's very, it's very nice. It's very functional, and we we're glad to have our our first one. And uh, yeah, Kirsten, I, I'm not. To be honest, I'm not sure if she's a huge sports fan, but we appreciate the support as well. Yeah, for sure. It's always it's always good to have that support. So, yeah, thank you very much for that. And we'll be uh, looking forward to getting that out on social media. Now, without further ado, let's go right into the NHL playoffs, which yeah. is one of the most fun things in sports. And why don't we start with our, our feel-good story, Tyson? And this involves a young kid named Spencer Knight. If you're a Canadian and you know him, yes, he broke our hearts in the World Junior Championships gold medal match this, this year. This year. And like Tyson, we were talking about this before the show. This young man came straight out of college mm-hmm. and into the NHL playoffs, somewhat similar to what Kale McCarr did a couple of years back. Mm-hmm. This kid is born April 19th, 2001. And mm-hmm. for those of us that straddle the line between millennials and Generation Z, Z if you're American, <laughs> that blows my mind. Like, you want to tell me Spencer Knight is 20 years old, which he is, right? He's got a, his whole future ahead of him. But to just say that he was born in 01, it breaks your brain a little bit. A little bit, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm just getting old. <laughs> Dude, how old are you again? I'm 24. You're 24. I'm 25. We're, like, halfway to the grave. Anyways, <laughs> uh, we hope not. But anyways, tell you a little bit about Spencer Knight. He's a goaltender, uh, an American kid born in Connecticut, mm-hmm. was drafted 13th overall in the first round by the Florida Panthers, his current team, two years ago in 2019. And... If you were watching the Tampa Bay Lightning Florida Panthers series, which was arguably the best series of the first round so far, it was lots of goals, lots of truculence, as Brian Burke likes to call it, mm-hmm. uh, scrums, fights, tempers flaring, and also just superstars going head to head. It was a great series, but you would have also have realized that Florida had a bit of a carousel going on in net. Sergei Bobrovsky was the gentleman they started with, and a guy that has a lot of raw talent, has been established as an elite goaltender before, but has really run into inconsistencies as of recent in his career. And unfortunately, that bit him once again during this key playoff series. He wasn't able to hold it down, and so for, I believe, games three and four, they went to Chris Drieger, 27-year-old, mm-hmm. who, again, this is something else we were talking about before the show, Chris Drieger, former Calgary hitman. And I personally, I remember going to the Scotiabank Saddle Dome. I think back then the Pengrove Saddle Dome. I think it, it could have oh, been that man. long ago. I, I forget. I forget how how long it's been since it was rebranded as the Scotiabank Saddle Dome, but that's not important. But I remember going with my parents, with my friends, as a, as a teenager in the early 2010s, mid-2010s, watching the Hitman and... Chris Drieger was this young teenager mm-hmm. uh, playing alongside playing alongside the guys in the Western Hockey League, one of the uh, one of the major junior leagues here in Canada. And now at 27 years old, he has made it to the NHL. 
become a, uh, at least someone who could challenge for a starting goaltender position. But <laughs> as great as that is, he didn't do so well either against yeah. the Tampa Bay Lightning. So with the backs against the wall, Florida went to this 20-year-old Spencer Knight, who is a highly touted prospect to begin with, excellent college career. And Spencer Knight proceeded to let in the first NHL shot. No, sorry, the first NHL playoff shot, rather, Mm -hmm. that he ever faced. Now, granted, it was a two-on-one rush. Very, very high difficulty. Mm -hmm. And certainly, there's... It's kind of one of those goals where you're like, if you stop that, it was as much luck as it was skill. Because it was a cross-crease pass, kind of a one-time tap-in. Yeah. Right. Uh, And I think that if you were a Florida fan uh, on Monday watching that, you'd be like, oh, here we go, right? He's only 20 years old. Uh, Mm -hmm. Are we going to get our wheels blown off here? And Spencer Knight stopped the next 36 shots in a row Mm -hmm. as the Florida Panthers took that game and forced a, a game six. Now, granted, they did lose... They did lose and were unfortunately shut out uh, yesterday for nothing, but they took the game five for one because Spencer Knight led in the first playoff shot he faced and then put the force field up. Very impressive stuff. Yeah, I'm really impressed with what Spencer Knight was able to do. Like, as a goalie, I understand kind of like what's going through Spencer Knight's head. For me personally, as a goalie, I always wanted to get shots early to build my confidence. And, like, Kelly Rudy also talks about this, like, you always want to have that first save of the game, so that way you can kind of have something to look back to. Like, uh, whenever you let in a goal, you always got to try and forget about the goal and remember all of the saves that you had before that and try and build off of what you've done and try and forget about the bad things that you're doing. So for Spencer Knight, no doubt, letting in the first goal of the game must have been really difficult for him especially when it's the playoffs, it's the defending champions, and you're down 3-1 at the time, and it's an, an, it's an elimination game for you. If you don't win, you do go home. And he comes out of that, and he's just absolutely unbeatable for, you know, 55 minutes of the game. And he's just incredible. And I am super, super impressed of Spencer Knight's not only confidence, but also mental toughness and mental ability to kind of put that one goal behind him and focus on the game at hand and play exceptional hockey for, you know, the first time he's ever appeared in the playoffs. No doubt it was something special and it's something he'll always remember. And just like you said, he stopped a bevy of high difficulty shots after letting in that first one because he was able to remain composed and his team did an excellent job rallying around him. He stopped two Nikita Kucherov one-timers, including one in the final two minutes that, uh, yeah, that really would have given Tampa Bay some life. And like these are some of the best players mm-hmm. in hockey. Nikita Kucherov is freakishly good. He's one of part of that current wave of mm-hmm. top-tier superstars. And Spencer Knight looked like a ten-year veteran in there on some of those sequences. And even though the Florida Panthers were not able to come back and their season is now over. I agree fully with Brian Boucher from the NBC broadcast that he has gained such valuable experience these last two games. And for a kid that has obvious talent, this is going to serve him extremely well going forward. I think so. And like what we saw two years ago with Carter Hart having success in the bubble 
and playing well in the regular season. That's kind of where Spencer Knight is right now and that you know he's a young goalie he has some good experience he played in four regular season games he won them all he had very good numbers he's put up very good stats so far this year and yeah like the future looks really bright for spencer knight now obviously the florida panthers have sergey bobrovsky at 10 million dollars for the next handful of years so you know like like you mentioned with sergey bobrovsky he could be you know, super inconsistent. One year he could be Vesna and could be unbeatable, but then the next year he's very mediocre and, you know, not even... Like, in this series, Sergei Bobrovsky was the third best goalie. And, like, you mentioned, like, Chris Drieger, like, in Game 6, which was the final elimination game, the starter was Spencer Knight, Drieger was the backup, and Bobrovsky, the $10 million goalie, was sitting in the press box because you know he wasn't the best option so I, I think like Florida has a really good future under Spencer Knight but unfortunately they gave Bobrovsky this massive contract so it's something that they're going to have to deal with and look towards Drieger is a UFA and there's a whole bunch of rumors that he'll be signing in Seattle and he'll be getting an opportunity to take the starting job in Seattle after a very good season this year so we'll look at that in the future but for Spencer Knight no doubt he looks like he could be the future for the Florida Panthers in goal and the Panthers they've had some good ones in Roberto Luongo uh you know uh, Roberto Luongo was uh, kind of overrated right no I'm just kidding <laughs> Roberto Luongo is a fantastic goaltender very funny personality the game will miss him in net mm-hmm. and fortunately we have young talents like Knight that are coming in and taking over an interesting piece of trivia that I heard on the NBC broadcast Yesterday, or rather this morning, because I watched it this morning when the Tampa Bay Lightning clinched, the Florida Panthers are the first team in NHL history to start three separate goalies at least twice over the course of a singular playoff series. Bobrovsky twice, Drieger twice, Spencer Knight twice. That has never happened before. Wow. That's <laughs> that's crazy. I didn't know that. that I guess that shows you, like... I. I understand Joel Quenville. He's a very, like, he's cutthroat a little bit. He likes things the way that he likes things, and he's he's very demanding of his players. And, you know, we saw that in Chicago when he won three cups. So if if Quenville thinks that, you know, Bobrovsky is going to give him the best chance to, to win games, then they're going to go with him. But he has absolutely no problem, you know, switching goalies out and trying and seeing what works. I think that's really interesting that, yeah, that that that's never happened before. But I guess it makes sense because usually teams, they usually go into a series with like a number one goalie or kind of a tandem where they can kind of pick between two guys. So, yeah, that's that's incredible. It's It, it shows you the depth of Florida's goaltending, but also it kind of shows you maybe a little bit of the inconsistency that it has. Right, and if you're a hockey fan, you know that goaltending can steal a playoff series any given year. Now, for those of you out there who don't watch as much hockey, you might think to yourself, how can one man be so important that he can essentially make up for the deficiencies of the five in front of him? And as a goalie, Tyson, I want to ask you about your thoughts on that later on, Mm -hmm. but I just want to bring up a stat from the Florida-Tampa series that illustrates just how 
excuse me, it illustrates just how important goaltending can be. So this was game number four of this particular series on, on May the 22nd. And Florida outshot Tampa Bay 41 to 26. Mm. And Tampa Bay won 6 to 2. Wow. 6 to 2. It makes no sense whatsoever. But when you look at what happened in net, you see that Sergei Bobrovsky gave up five goals on 14 shots. That's 64% just mm. about. Drieger came in and only let in one on 12, but the damage had already been done at that point. Andre Vasilevsky stopped 39 of 41. They, that's, first of all, Vasilevsky is, uh, is an elite goaltender, and the Tampa Bay Lightning know what they have in him. Mm-hmm. But Tyson, as someone who's played this position yourself, can you talk a little bit more about how goaltending not only is important, but how these sorts of things can really decide the outcome of a series. Yeah, so goaltending is super important in, like, one-to-one games. Like, over the course of the season, you can kind of play it a little bit like baseball with averages. Like, if you go, if you have a goalie that, you know, only gives up two-and-a-half goals a game, you know, sometimes it's going to be two, sometimes it's going to be three, sometimes it's going to be one, sometimes it's going to be four. You can kind of expect, based off of how your team is going to play, that you can kind of decide, you know, okay, we need to score, you know, about this many goals in order to win most of our games. But in a short playoff series, if a goalie goes on a hot stretch and gets, like, super confident and start playing really well, it's almost impossible for him to get beat. Like, there have been times where I've been in playoff situations and I've been, you know, playing really well. I, I felt really confident, super good going into the games, and I just... I shut the door and there were some saves that even I was like wow I can't believe I made those saves and the other team was like well what do we do we can't beat this guy he's too good and you know we go on and and we win games even though we necessarily probably shouldn't have won those games and you know there's a there's a story that I had for example where I was in midget hockey and it was my second last game that I ever played in minor hockey and we had it was a 6:30 in the morning game, and we had eight guys in the uh, in the dressing room before the game, and myself. And unfortunately, we had three guys from the local uh, native reserve, and they had a prior commitment with another team with their native team, so they were able to play half the game, but they had to leave because they had another prior. Was commitment. Ethan Bear one of them? I'm no, just he was not. So, but they had to leave prior to the game, so we lost three players. So all of a sudden now, we had oh, we had nine players and myself. So we went from nine players down to six, and then we had another guy on our team. He had started work that same day. It was his first time. He needed to go to work. He needed to get a job. So we had, for the final 11 minutes of the game, we had five players and nobody else. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and, like, it was me and five guys, and the bench was empty. And it was just to show you, like, how funny it was just in the situation. Um, there was a time where we actually got the puck, and we actually uh, were able to draw the penalty. And I was like, oh, cool, we can, I can go to the bench, we can get an extra attacker, we can go six on five. I skated halfway to the bench, and then I realized that there was nobody on the bench to come off for me. Oh. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> right? And I, like, like skated halfway there, and I was like, oh, wait, 
we can't even go. So I skated slowly back to my <laughs> to my <laughs> to my net, and I, I could hear all the parents in the crowd laughing because it was just funny. And I made 45 saves that day, and we won three to two. Congratulations! So just like to show you, like that was that was a situation where I was on my game, I was feeling confident, and no matter what the circumstances were, we had five players, they had 20. I, they weren't getting past me. We were winning the game. And that certainly has been, that certainly was the attitude that Andre Vasilevsky appeared to take with his Lightning teammates. Even though it was a very high scoring series at times, he still was able to buckle down and shut the door when necessary. And I do think that looking back on this series, goaltending was the primary difference because at times, Florida was able to run and gun with the Tampa Bay Lightning. They have their own superstars like Alexander Barkov, Jonathan Huberdeau. They played, their blue line played very well in the absence of their top defenseman, Aaron Ekblad. Sam Bennett also played quite well. Yes, he did. And uh, we're not going to talk about that too much because, uh, you know, as a Flames fan, you, 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 you hate to kind of realize that your, your coaching staff probably mismanaged him and a number of other young players mm-hmm. over the course of the last few years. But yes, he, I'm not ready to call him a superstar just yet, but he was an excellent second liner. Mm-hmm. And essentially, what I'm trying to say, Florida had the firepower and their defense was at times up to the task containing this lightning offense, but it's because they had such a carousel in net mm-hmm. and Tampa Bay knew that they had one rock in net that they could count on every night that that ended up being the difference. So that puts a bow on a very, very entertaining series. And you know what? Mm-hmm. For many years, the, the Florida Panthers especially, and even the Tampa Bay Lightning, I think, to a lesser extent, have been underappreciated by their markets despite being very solid teams. And we really hope that the Battle of Florida is going to continue and that it is going to be something that can that can draw in fans to this this corner of the NHL. Mm-hmm. Like Alexander Barkov and Jonathan Huberto have the talent to be appreciated mm-hmm. the way that Crosby and McDavid and, and Dreisaitl and Kucherov are. They're just less famous because they play in Florida, but hopefully yeah. this series has cast uh, has cast some light on them now. But having said that, there's a second playoff series we can talk about to show you the importance of goaltending, and that, of course, was the New York Islanders versus the Pittsburgh Penguins. Now, Tyson, if I were to tell you that the Pittsburgh Penguins starting goaltender Tristan Jari allowed three or more goals in five of the six games in this series, does that sound like a winning formula to you? Um, no. <laughs> no, that is not. the right answer. <laughs> no, yeah, when you allow three or more goals, it means that your team has to score more. Like, I remember when I was a young kid, my dad said to me, you as the goalie get to determine how many goals that your forwards have to score to win, right? Because if you let in four, then if you need to win, then your forwards got to score five, right? So if you're letting in three, four goals a game, then that means your forwards need to have you know, good games and they need to play well. So that's kind of how I see it is like in the playoffs is you need to, as a goalie, you need to try and make life easier on your forwards by giving them as many opportunities they have if they run into a really good goalie to kind of keep that that game 
low scoring as much as you can. And certainly Tristan Jari was unable to do that this year. He let in, I think, at least 10, if not 11 or 12 goals, high glove in particular. Oh. Yes. The vast majority of the goals scored on him over the course of this series were high glove. And when, and cause, because I watched three games in that series, Islanders forwards were shooting there with regularity, mm-hmm. almost every chance that they got, unless it was a, an attempted backdoor play or something else set. But off the rush, high glove was more often than not their go-to choice, and that was a smart play on their part because Jari did not have a good glove hand this series. He was very badly exposed for it, and in that final game of the series yesterday, you, you said it, I think, best. If Tristan Jari was average to good, the Penguins pull that out probably 3-2, mm-hmm. and instead... They lost the game 5-3, and they lost the series four games to two because over the span of about three minutes, Tristan Jari led in three rapid-fire goals, and that really was the end of it. That really was. And, like, I understand kind of watching the replay. Like, the the fifth one for sure was bad. Um, The third one I didn't like as well, kind of watching and analyzing the, the goal as well. But well, I mean, I guess just to point point it out, the mm-hmm. I guess what the goals are, we probably should mention. I believe the first one was a cross crease one time tap in right. for Brock Nelson. That's one of those. That's very similar to the one that Spencer Knight mm-hmm. led in. That one is one of those, like we said before, it's as much luck as skill to stop that. The second and third one, folks, we're gonna spell this out for you so you can appreciate what we're talking about. The second one was a one time slap shot from the blue line off a face-off mm-hmm. by Ryan Pulak that, and there was a screen in front and it just beat Tristan Jari clean. Granted, Ryan Pulak has a howitzer, but still arguably a shot that you need to save. The third one was particularly bad because Brock Nelson simply drove down the ice. Anthony Beauvillier backed off the defense with his speed mm-hmm. and Brock Nelson forced a wrist shot through the five hole from 25 feet or yeah. so. Those are the three goals we're talking about. And you were saying the Pulak one-timer and the and Nelson's wrist shot in particular, those are those are goals that Jari's got to have in the playoffs. Yeah. I, like, you don't need all of them, but you need at least two of them. Like, at some point, you kind of need to expect a save. Like, what the Leafs struggled with for years is they had a goalie who could make all of the expected saves but they don't have a goalie that could make the unexpected saves. Like like a Vasilevsky can. Right. So, like, sometimes in a playoff series especially, you need a goalie to bail you out and make a save that they normally wouldn't make. They need to be able to rise to that occasion and play beyond what they're normally capable of just so that way that one instance they can bail them out and keep the team in it. Like, a game where it's 4-3 for the Islanders is vastly different than 5-3, right? So when we're thinking about this in in this game, I think if Tristan Jari gave them a few more saves, it would have really been able to benefit the Penguins. But, I mean, like you said, how many goals was it? 10, 11, 12? High glove? At least 10 high glove. High glove. Like, that's bad. For those of you who may not know, like, the blocker is a little bit bigger in size to the glove, like the glove is a little bit smaller, so a lot of forwards take advantage of that and they try and shoot glove side. But, you know, if you're an NHL goalie and you understand that your high glove is a weakness, 
that needs to be corrected. And unfortunately, this year it wasn't. For sure. And now the Penguins have an entire offseason to not only do the post the postmortem rather on this playoff loss, but also to look ahead to the future because it really seems like the window at this point for them is closed. And why do I say that? Well, hmm. Pittsburgh's last Stanley Cup win was 2017. They also won one in 2016 before that, and that was obviously a combination of good development of guys like Jake Gensel, um, as well as building the right team and selling out to try to get over the hump and win some more Stanley Cups, which is great for them and that fan base. But the Pittsburgh Penguins have played in five playoff series since 2017, and they've only won one of them. Mm. And it just goes to show you, first of all, not just how demanding playoff hockey can be on the same group of guys if they're making the playoffs year in and year out. Because if you think about it, that's several weeks more hockey that you're playing compared to guys that don't make the playoffs and have a longer offseason. But at this point... They have, it's yet another first round exit, rather, for the Penguins. Crosby, Malkin, and Latang are not getting any younger. And it, it kind of looks like, it may not be immediate, but it looks like the window is closed for them. Yeah, it's always hard to say, like, when the window is closed for a team. When you have a player like Sidney Crosby, or you have Evgeny Malkin, and you have Chris Latang, right? And, like, when you look at their team, they are older, like, Malkin is 34, Crosby 33, but then they also have Jason Zucker, who's 29, Brandon Tanev, who's 29, Jeff Ryan, Carter, who's 35, 36, it's 36, my apologies, Brian Rust is 29 as well, you know, and Chris Letang is 34, Brian Dumoulin is 29, like most of their players are, are, you know, getting up there in age, they're not in their prime anymore, and with Brian Burke going to, like, their hockey, like, VP of Hockey Operations and and Ron Hextall, their new general manager that they hired mid-season this year, both of them made the public statement that they are going to try and keep this window open. They're not going into a rebuild. Right. So what they're going to have to try and do is they're going to have to try and get players through free agency and trades that are younger than these guys that can maybe take some of the pressure off of Crosby and Malkin. Yes, and it certainly remains to be seen whether or not they can do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that it'll be interesting what happens to the Penguins over the next few years, whether they are able to keep the window open mm -hmm. or whether the attempt to do so simply sets that rebuild even further behind because we have also seen that time and again with multiple teams mm -hmm. across multiple different sports. But last thing on the goalie subject before we move on Tyson I wanted to ask you this is that mm -hmm. like you said not only is goaltending important in the playoffs but you do need goalies to bail you out from time to time so that you can stay in in a close game or try to mount a comeback that otherwise would be a little bit too far out of reach mm -hmm. the the obvious counter argument to that is it, it depends on the quality of chances that you're that you're facing right like right. if you are letting in soft goals or if you are letting in goals that you saw coming and wasn't able to shut the door on I think at, in those situations you can rightfully criticize the goaltender for poor or inconsistent play but what happens 
in a situation, not just to the team, but also to the goaltender's mind, if you let in four or five goals a game and all five of them were one-timers from star players or deflections or even breakaways from guys that know how to score, like what, in your opinion, is the way to actually look at that because you're like, okay, this goalie let in five goals and his team lost 5-2. That's not good. But at the same time, who can reasonably be expected to stop these types of scoring chances? Yeah, that's that's a good point because I think you have to contextualize it. And I think a good way of thinking about it is like the 80s Oilers with Grant Fuhrer. So Grant Fuhrer, when you look at his numbers, his numbers are bad. Like he three and a half, four goals a game most of the time in the 80s. Like, I get, I get it. It was the 80s. Tons of people, lots of goals. Lots of people were scoring out of their mind in the 80s. Yes. But with the Oilers, especially because they had, you know, Gretzky, Messier, Curry, and Coffey, who's an offensive defenseman, they wanted to kind of outscore the other team a lot of nights. So they would win games 7-6 or 8-6. <laughs> or that kind of game. When the NHL ran lacrosse games back right. in the 80s. Right, back in the 80s. So kind of when, when you, you look at it from the body of work of Grant Fuhrer, you go, okay, you've done what you can up until this point, but the reason why Grant Fuhrer is in the Hall of Fame is because when it gets to the third period and the game is close, he would make outstanding saves that he wouldn't have made in the first and second period. And that is what the difference was between the Oilers winning cups and the Oilers not winning cups in the 80s. And that's kind of when I think about it in in the context of it, is that in the third period especially, but also, you know, during the game, like, if you're able to keep the game close, that I think is important. Not allowing the other team to get multiple goals ahead or, or, or kind of letting the game get out of hand. So when we think about kind of goaltending in that kind of sense, I, I think it's important to keep it contextualized. Like, obviously, if you're getting 10 breakaways a period, you're not going to have a good goals against their save percentage. And, it, and it's unreasonable to expect that. And I think in that situation, the defense would be criticized. But with, like, close games especially, like if you're down 2-1 or if you're down 3-2, you're trying to kind of keep your guys in the game. You got to make that exceptional save that helps keep your team in it. Like there have been times um, with the Leaf series, and we can get into this a little bit later on, where the Leafs are up, but Carey Price makes an absolutely outstanding save, and it keeps it out of one goal game. That kind of keeps the Canadians in it, and that is kind of what I'm talking about. Yeah, I fully agree with you, and. I think sometimes in the world of professional sports, it's just all too easy to criticize one player in a team sport. And mm-hmm. but but I think that most you know, most fair coaches, most fair analysts would would do what you said: is mm-hmm. contextualize the situation. And if a goalie gave up five A one deflections, well, gee whiz, the guys in front of them need to get their sticks in those passing lanes and make sure that at least some of those deflection plays or backdoor plays never have a chance to develop and that's a different situation than if your goalie gets smoked high glove by a third liner off the rush yeah right so with that said why don't we move on to the Leafs Hab series just because you you brought it up Toronto's up 3-1 and you obviously love that fact not only are you on the cusp of victory but it's over your most hated well I don't know Boston's pretty 
it's vilified. Close. It's, it's mm-hmm. one of your two most hated mm-hmm. uh, rivals ever, and of course the Montreal-Toronto blood feud mm-hmm. will always be something that gets the blood pressure of hockey fans up, yeah. particularly when it comes in the playoffs. But as we know, it certainly did not start according to plan mm. for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And folks, for those of you that didn't see this play, John Tavares, who is a top three player on, on the Maple Leafs and one of the one of the best centers in the league, was body checked. I mean, was it the first or the second period? John period. It was the first period of game one, Leafs and Canadians. He was body checked, which was a clean hit, and he fell to the ice, which is fairly normal, fairly routine play. What was not routine was the fact that Habs winger Corey Perry was skating in the vicinity, his eyes looking up ice to follow the play. And as John Tavares fell into his path, Perry was not able to evade in time, and he essentially kneed John Tavares straight in the face, and Tavares was down for several minutes and had to be stretchered off and taken to a local hospital. Very, very scary play, mm-hmm. and very unfortunate that it happens to one of the top offensive players, certainly, in, in Canada. But why don't you give us uh, not only your your feelings about that and how your heart probably stopped, mm-hmm. but also how John Tavares is doing now because I think it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, it definitely could have. And like there are a lot of people that understand like Corey Perry as a player. He's not necessarily the most sportsmanlike, if I could put it that way. <laughs> Correct. There 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 are a lot of people and you as a Flames fan would know that Corey Perry has had a history of kind of towing the line between uh, being dirty and being, you know, fair. And I don't think that's one of these plays. No. No. This no. was a complete accident. And anybody who says that Corey Perry did this on purpose, trying to knee him in the head, is clearly, clearly wrong. Like, Corey Perry and John Tavares, they're good friends. They've been on Olympic teams together. They've played on Team Canada. And they're, not only that, but at game speed, it is, it is impossible to draw that up. You no, can't. You can't. And it's, and it's just a total, complete fluke accident. Now, Ben Sherratt, the guy who hit Tavares... He kind of led with his knee a little bit and kind of got half of Tavares. Oh, okay. (laughs) Which kind of made, like, it wasn't a dirty play because it happens all the time. Um, But that's, like, that's kind of how you're taught to hit is kind of, like, lean forward and kind of lean, like, lean towards him. And when you're trying to lean towards the players naturally, your feet and knees follow. So, like, that's kind of... Ben Sherrod is just doing what he was taught. So like kind of that and he kind of got half of Tavares and knocked him down and spun him around and then unfortunately the collision with Corey Perry happened and then you know the unfortunate sight of John Tavares half conscious half conscious trying to get up onto his home power and him unable to and essentially falling backwards was unfortunate to say the least and, and it was very scary for everybody watching him and you know, I'll give the medical professionals credit. They did everything they could in that situation. Like, John Tavares, half-conscious, is trying to get up. And he clearly wasn't in the state to do so. So it, it definitely was very scary at the time, and it was very concerning. And, you know, I, I know a lot of Leafs players were very devastated once that happened. Like, for example, like, you saw Austin Matthews after that. Like, he was in tears on He the absolutely bench. was. He was in tears on the bench. All of the guys, like, who weren't on the bench came over and, like, they had a knee mm-hmm. down and they were, like, 
hoping that he would be okay. Yes. And it's always scary. When and, and you have to give credit to Jumbo Joe Thornton and Jason Spezza for, I think, being calm veterans in that situation, trying to keep their teammates mm-hmm. sort of at least under control as well. Yeah, and I think, like, because the Leafs are a very young team, people forget because, like, they, Jason Spezza, Joe Thornton, you know, Nick Foligno, Jake Mazin, these are kind of, like, the veteran players on their team, but a lot of their team is very young, like... Pierre Engvall is very young. He wasn't playing in that game, but Alex Kerfoot, you know, he's a young guy in his mid mid twenties, and and Austin Matthews is still only twenty. Nylander, twenty three. You know, these guys are not they're young players, so they they haven't kind of gone through this serious injury that maybe other guys like Joe Thornton have. So yeah, like it, it was definitely scary and sad to to say the least, and. With the fight that came afterwards on Nick Foligno and Corey yes. Perry, I, I don't know. Like, people like disliked the fight, and I, I kind of go, well, what, what else are you supposed to do? Kind, I think it was kind of Nick Foligno's way of trying to get Toronto back into playing hockey mode, rather than trying to, kind of, do retribution for what Perry did to Thornton. I don't think that's what it was. No, I don't think it was at all. He didn't jump him. He challenged him to a fight face-to-face. There was Mm -hmm. a conversation about it before, Mm -hmm. and Perry decided, let's just get this over with. And I think that, again, fighting is a controversial issue in hockey. That's a conversation for another time. But I do think, at least from an outsider's point of view, it seemed like Nick Foligno was trying to get closure for his team more than anything else. He was trying to get that out of the way Mm -hmm. so that they can try to win that game. So I would agree with you. Obviously, the Leafs were not able to win that game. It was a close one, and the the Canadians uh, pulled it out 2-1. And then the Leafs came back with a 5-1 victory in Game 2. They ground out another close one to one game three, and then it was a 4 nothing shutout mm-hmm. in game four. So I want to ask you as a Leafs fan, one game away from putting away Montreal, do you think it's a positive sign that, that your team has been able to win games not only in the absence of John Tavares, but that you've also been able to win games in multiple ways this series? Oh, it's very, very, ha- like, very positive. I'm super thrilled about it. Like, William Nylander, for example, has four goals, and the Canadians have four goals. So, like, the fact that the Canadians only have four goals, I think is a, is a, it's something that the Canadians are definitely going to have to try and fix this season in the offseason, is trying to get more scoring. But with the Leafs, I think that also shows, like, how much they've improved defensively. Like, TJ Brody, he's been very good defensively for us. Like we said a few uh, months ago, I still find it fascinating that he's played much more of a defensive role than than he did in Calgary. Yeah, like, I mean, I'm watching in the playoffs, and Sheldon Keefe has Zach Bogosian and TJ Brody out there for the final three minutes of one-goal games. Like, that's... that's and, and like impressive. They, and they also have, like, they have Muzzin and uh, Hall. Those That's kind of their, their four guys that they want to use late game when killing, like, or when they have a lead. And, you know, Morgan Riley will also play a few minutes in those final three minutes or so. But that's kind of like their mainstay shutdown line. And TJ Brody and Zach Bogosian both have been exceptional defensively and helped mm-hmm. shutting down the team and helped shutting shutting down the Habs. So it's been good to see, you know, the scoring touch of, of William Nylander outside of John Tavares 
good to see other guys step up. You know, Alex Galchenyuk had a three-point night. That's always great to see. And also, yeah, the defense has been exceptional. It always impresses me how depth guys can either... I don't know what it is. I think Sometimes I think it's depth guys elevating their game. Sometimes it's depth guys taking advantage of the opportunities that the playoffs provide for them. Mm-hmm. But let's be real. I mean, Justin Hall, I think, on, on paper is a depth... Uh, is a no. depth defenseman, or at least he kind of he kind of had that uh, reputation earlier in his career. Mm-hmm. Zach Bogosian is this measurables king, mm-hmm. uh, but injuries due to in large part he never really lived up to his advanced potential, and he was, shall we say, not one of the primary defenders that Tampa Bay used during their their cup run last year. And T.J. Brody, at least in my experience in Calgary, was more of a, a, a two-way offensively oriented defenseman so it's just cool to see that those guys are able to I think particularly in the case of someone like Bogosian to really step up and be like you need me to shut down the opponent in the final minutes of the game I'm able to do that for you mm-hmm. yeah no that's been that's been really good you know Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews and Zach Hyman that first line they haven't really gotten on the score sheet a whole lot Matthews, I think, has a goal, but other than kind of, you know, the, the here and there offense, they've kind of been shut down, so that's something that I would like to hopefully see get better at, as hopefully the Leafs get better on in the playoffs, so. Sure. And, and I think that, you know, right now, it's it's nothing to, it, we're not expecting them to, to all of a sudden go for three goals, but they could, you never know, they definitely right. have that skill, so, and I think they're skilled enough. They're going to get theirs. So, Yeah, and you know what? One thing uh, that I noticed in Game 1 for Austin Matthews in particular, we have talked uh, earlier off the show about how Matthews appears to have matured significantly as a player and as a person compared to the years before. And mm-hmm. I want to specifically point out what he did in Game 1 because even though he didn't score in that game, after John Tavares was taken to the hospital, I believe Austin Matthews finished that game with eight shots mm-hmm. on net. He was... Like he was going for it. He, it was bombs away, and he was also using his size, doing everything he could to try to win that game. And Carey Price was just Carey Price that particular night. So I think sometimes it's not just about whether or not you score in the playoffs, but it is also whether you as a top player on your team are playing like it. And I feel that even though Matthews has not put up the big numbers yet, uh, I think that he has been bringing it. He's been bringing the right attitude. Mm-hmm. He appears to be a, a tougher and more engaged player versus previous years. Mm-hmm. And he's a constant threat, which just gives Montreal something to worry about and opens up the ice for your other guys. Yeah, and I, and I would agree with that. And it's good to see Austin Matthews not being, you know, baited into taking penalties after the whistle. Like a lot of Canadians, they're trying to rough it up and they're trying to, you know, grab on you know players like Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner and try and get him into a pushing match or a fighting match but it's good for Austin Matthews to stay disciplined and not go to the penalty box take the power play now the Leafs power play they've been okay they haven't been anything special but the Leafs penalty kill has been exceptional they've been a hundred percent in this series very good that is that is definitely something that you're going to need and 
any team, any playoff series, because <laughs> when you take a penalty, you give the other team the advantage, and that is that's not something you can have if you want to have consistently if you want to pull out that series. So just for fun, before we move on to our to our next team, I'm gonna let you be Elliot Friedman here mm-hmm. and say what do the Maple Leafs need to do to close out the series? They can do it tonight, but even if they don't, what do they need to keep doing or start doing to close out the Habs? What the Leafs need to do in order to close out the the Habs is to continue to play stout defense. If the Canadians can't get three goals a game, I don't think they're going to win. I think I have more faith in the Leafs getting three than the Canadians getting three. So, with the Leafs, I think that the defensive ability is going to be key in order to help shut down the Canadians' offense and then just let our boys run from there. For sure, and we will see if they're able to do just that and book themselves a ticket in the second round. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, we know that there are some teams that will not be booking their ticket to the second round already. Mm -hmm. And the Edmonton Oilers, unfortunately for them, fall into that category. I think very few people reasonably expected the Winnipeg Jets to sweep the Edmonton Oilers, which for all you non-hockey folks, that's four straight wins, the playoff series, which is all you need to move on. And the Winnipeg Jets for most of those games, played very stout defense on Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, two top five offensive threats in the NHL. And the last three games, pardon me, all went to overtime. And the final game, that game four, went to triple OT. I frankly did not stay up for that. I did. You did. And, well, in that case... Why don't we start there? What were your, what do you remember your first impressions being after Kyle Connor's triple OT winner and thinking about, wow, the Oilers just got swept by the Jets? Yeah, I was, I was a little bit stunned at the, the fact that they got swept. I thought Edmonton was going to pull out that game and go back to Edmonton and for game five. But yeah, like I, I saw it and I was like, okay, so what's happening here is that this is now a war of stamina and endurance and the Winnipeg Jets have more depth. And I think that the team that has more depth definitely will have a beneficial chance. As long, the longer the game goes on, the team that has the most depth plays that. And I think like they said in the intermission between the second and third intermission that the Winnipeg Jets, they played, I think, 11 forwards and the Oilers only played nine. So when you're kind of handicapped in a way of like, okay, we need to score, we need to be on our best, and we're only going to play, you know, we're only going to roll three lines, that's really tough on those three those three lines for three overtime periods. So it, it gives a, a lot of understanding on, on where the Oilers' weaknesses were in that series is that it was their depth because, you know, I, I saw Ryan Nugent Hopkins and he was mostly inefficient for most of that game. Like, he got a goal that game, but it was kind of off of a lucky bounce where he split the defense, kind of got in alone, and was able to kind of put it put it high on Hellebuck. But realistically, Nugent Hopkins, that second line, that third line, they weren't offensive threats. 
So then the entire offense was relying on McDavid and Dreisaitl. Right, and top heaviness is rarely a formula for success in the NHL in the NHL playoffs. And much to your point about about defense, um, pardon me, Darnell Nurse played a four minute, I think four minute forty seven second shift in overtime in that game four, which is absolutely unheard of and it honestly props to him that he was still a living breathing man at the end of that shift because that is that's extreme but at the same time like you were alluding to before if you have to ride the same guys that heavily because you don't have enough depth or you know you don't trust your maybe your bottom pair of guys to play a few more minutes that certainly does not bode well no it doesn't and I think going into the series, everybody saw like how the Winnipeg Jets were reeling going into the playoffs, and like no doubt they did not have you know good games like their last ten games. They lost the vast majority going into the playoffs, and the Oilers looked amazing going into the playoffs. So naturally, a lot of people took the Oilers because they were like, oh yeah, their depth players are just going to be enough, and McDavid and Drysaddle are just going to go bananas. But unfortunately, what happened was is that the Winnipeg Jets defense and the depth players were able to shut down McDavid and Dreisaitl by what I would consider cheating because they were doing interference, they were hooking him, they were holding him, but the refs weren't calling it because it's the playoffs. So essentially a throwback to the clutch and grab era. Yeah, and for example, like McDavid drew a total of zero penalties in mm-hmm. that entire series. Mm-hmm. Like that's... That's not how it's supposed to go. Like, I think that if the refs called the play, like the, the game according to the rule books, the Oilers definitely would have had more power plays, and I think they would, they would have scored more. And I think, you know, with the Jets' defense being able to, you know, run into McDavid, interfere with him, hold him, kind of cause him to, you know, get into scrums along this outside of the play or whatever... It helped benefit the Jets' defense. And, you know, ultimately, McDavid, he's not good enough to fight through the refs and the Winnipeg G- defense. Oh, really? I thought he was the savior. No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. He's a phenomenal player, but like you said, this is a team sport, and mm-hmm. you can only do so much as a superstar to elevate your team. And one thing that I also wanted to bring up is not just the lack of depth on the back end for the Edmonton Oilers. For example, Ethan Bear was, I believe, benched in Game 4 after just a brutal turnover in his his own end, throwing the puck up the middle, and it being picked off by a jet and leading to a goal. But also, in the forward court, you mentioned Ryan Nugent Hopkins and how he was largely inefficient. Then you have two guys like Dominic Cahoon and Kyler Yamamoto, Two guys that, while undersized, they have skill on paper. And you would think that playing with McDavid and Drysaddle, that both those guys could have hit at the bare minimum 10 goals, if not 20-plus. And neither of them hit 10 goals. And I think that really just shows you how top-heavy the Oilers are. Yeah. I, I, everybody was upset with Ken Holland at the trade deadline when he said you can't go all-in every year. And everybody was like, what do you mean? You have McDavid. You have Drysaddle. It's the North Division. It's a weaker division. This is your best chance to get through. And I think now, in hindsight, Ken Holland was right. They didn't have enough. And the guys that they had on their team, like 
Yamamoto and Dominic Cahoon, they should have been better than they were this year. And like you said, like I was surprised at how bad Yamamoto was in the last half of the season. Like he's a good player and he's feisty and he tries and he and he has excellent effort every night and for a lot of time you couldn't say that about most Oilers. So he gives it, he has effort, and he's definitely a really good core of their player, core player of their future, but he didn't produce this year. And with playing with Dreisaitl and sometimes McDavid, he needs to produce more, especially also being on that power play at times as well. So I think that when you look at the Oilers, it just shows you like they are not one or two players away. There are multiple players away on offense and on defense and possibly a goaltender because Mike Smith, he's 39, yes. turning 40. Nico Koskinen was pretty underwhelming this year. He didn't play very well. So I, the Oilers are multiple pieces away from competing for a Stanley Cup, and I think that this sweep kind of wakes up Oilers fans to realize that. Yes, and I think that another thing that is worth touching on is the ultimately series-changing penalty that Josh Archibald took in the third period mm-hmm. of Game 3. This is a game where, after being essentially smothered with a pillow in Games 1 and 2, McDavid and Dreisaitl hit it hard out of the gates, and they were scoring so, Excuse me, they were scoring goals, setting up their line mates. The Oilers were... I, I, I believe it was a 3-1 lead. It might have been a 4-1 lead. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, I think it was a 4-1 lead in the in the third period of that game three. And Josh Archibald, who's one of their bottom six forwards, he goes ahead and he hits Logan Stanley, the Jets defenseman, low, clips him in the knees. He takes a penalty. The Jets score on that power play, and they score two more mm-hmm. in the next three minutes to tie that game before ultimately winning it in overtime. I think that was by far the Oilers' best chance to get back into that series. They needed to hold a three-goal lead for about 12 minutes, and they weren't able to do so. And when we look at not just the how bad the timing was on Josh Archibald's penalty, but also what it was, mm-hmm. you really think that that fired up the Jets and got them emotionally invested in the game again and the rest is history. Yeah, and I think it's important to note, like, for the Winnipeg Jets, Nikolai Ehlers came back that game. So, like, Nikolai Ehlers, he had scored earlier in the game, and I believe he also got the game winner that game. So he had a very good night, and the Jets absolutely missed Nikolai Ehlers for the back half of the year when he was hurt. So I think, like... He's a straw that stirs the drink, kind of like Kyle Lowry is for the Toronto Raptors. Yeah, kind of, yeah, exactly like that. So... Definitely the Jets benefited from getting Ehlers and Pierre-Luc Dubois back in the lineup after missing them for the back half of the regular season. But like you said, like there's no excuse for taking that penalty. It's just a dumb, dumb move by Archibald to try and go low at that point in the game. Like the last thing you want to do when you're like when you're when you're beating a team handily at that point, three goals I would say is quite handily the last thing you want to do is get them emotionally invested in the game again because kind of when you score a goal it kind of knocks the wind out of you a little bit but when you score multiple goals it's like oh now we have to fight through this 
it's kind of it's hard to get your mind and your emotions back in this game. But when Josh Archibald tries to go low on Logan Stanley, a lot of Jets players took that as dirty, which it was, and he got suspended for it. But that got the Jets emotionally invested back into that game. And kind of like what we said about Tristan Jari, you know, letting in three goals, Mike Smith, he needs to make a save there. I didn't sure. I didn't love the Josh Morrissey tying goal. That, you know, point shot went five hole. Sure. Not really screened. Didn't I didn't love that one. I, I thought that, you know, that was definitely a soft goal. And at the same time, like Mike Smith you need to be able to kind of backstop the Oilers when they're reeling, especially because you know that the Oilers' defense isn't as deep as mm. the Jets' is, I think. And you know what the Archibald penalty reminds me of, albeit to a lesser extent, was the 2019 playoffs, I believe, the Vegas Golden Knights and the San Jose Sharks, and Vegas had a 4 nothing lead in the third period of Game 7. Like you said, they were handily beating the San Jose Sharks and on their way to the next round of the playoffs. And then Cody Eakin cross-checks former mm. Sharks captain Joe Pavelski in the face, off a face-off. It was an incredibly needless play. And because Pavelski was coming off a facial injury at that point, there was a lot of blood. He was badly messed up and had to leave the game. Cody Eakin was thrown out. And San Jose... It was, it was a five-minute major. Yes. Yes. And I was he thrown out? I can't remember. I, I believe he was, but nonetheless, the point I was trying to make is that San Jose stormed back with four power play goals yeah. in the third period en route to an eventual 5-4 overtime series winner. And I think that the Archibald play and the Eakin play, like the Archibald play, not nearly as severe, but still, they're cut from the same cloth of you are handily beating your opponent, and you did something that put yourself behind the eight ball because it was a power play to the other team, but you also fired up every single person on the opposing bench and they made you pay for it. Absolutely. And I think with the Oilers, I think that that's a learning experience. Josh Archibald, you know, he's a good penalty killer. He's a good depth guy, but, you know, don't know if he's had much playoff experience. So I think that's something that the Oilers will have to learn from. And it's tough right now and it's a tough pill to swallow especially because they got swept. So, And we will we will see what transpires in the second round of the NHL playoffs. The Wild and Wild and Golden Knights and the Predators and the Hurricanes, as of, uh, as of Thursday morning, they have got a couple of Game 7s, I believe, upcoming. Those game, game 6 for Carolina. Game 6 for Carolina, my mistake, and Game 7 for Wild and the Golden Knights. And it will be interesting to see how that plays out. So with all that said, why don't we move on to the other major North American sport that is in the playoffs right now. That, of course, is basketball with the NBA. But before we talk about the playoffs specifically, let's talk about one of the most polarizing players in the NBA, Russell Westbrook, who earlier this year set the record for the most triple doubles in NBA history with 184 of them. Second place goes to Oscar Robertson with 181 over the course of his career many years ago. Now, again, if you don't know what a triple-double is, it is essentially when a player scores in double digits in three categories, which is almost always... I almost said goals. It's not hockey. No. Points, assists, and rebounds. And 
Sometimes it can be steel. Sometimes it or, can be. Or blocks if you're uh, Yoki Noah. And if you're a freak. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, anyways, Russell Westbrook is an extremely athletic player, tons of talent. He tries, essentially, he tries almost harder than every, anyone I've ever seen. And he sure rebounds scarily well for a 6'3 point guard at least on paper. And again, on paper, this is a very, very impressive feat. But Tyson, you're not particularly impressed by Russell Westbrook in spite of the numbers he's putting up on paper. Why is that? I don't understand why people love Brian or Russell Westbrook, sorry. I I think I think Westbrook is so overrated. Like it's so easy for a really good basketball player to get points and assists and rebounds on a bad basketball team. And I think that that's what Westbrook has made a career of doing, is that he he's a stat monger, he's a ball hog, and he's really good on bad teams. I think that's kind of what he does. For me personally, I value a triple-double on a good team that is in a playoff spot way more than a triple-double that is on a 10th, 11th place team, which is what Washington was for most of the year. And I don't think that Russell Westbrook is particularly good at contributing to team wins. I think he's more focused on his own stats. And like Westbrook, I'll give him this, he tries incredibly hard. And nobody goes for rebounds and points than, than Russell Westbrook. But he doesn't shoot the ball very well. He's a high-usage player. He oftentimes has a lot of turnovers. Russell Westbrook ultimately just, it's inefficient basketball. And I don't think that it contributes to winning. So I think that when you're looking at stats and you're looking at player individual achievements, you have to contextualize his numbers with his team wins. Because the year that Russell Westbrook had averaged a triple-double, Oklahoma City was the seventh seed in the West and was out in the first round. Like, I don't think that Westbrook, as the main focus of any NBA team, can be a quality franchise that can make noise in the playoffs, let alone make, ever win a championship. So I think that, but the problem is, is that Westbrook, because of the way that he plays, has to be the focus of how you play, because he's so ball dominant. So. I don't think that any team that Russell Westbrook leads can ever have success, and the problem is is that Russell Westbrook won't ever be in a position to not be a leader because he doesn't know how to play without the basketball. And that might be uh, fighting words, shall we say, to to a lot of a lot of people. But I think that you're closer to the truth than what some people would give you credit for. And to back that up, uh, we want to give a shout out to a YouTuber. Uh, that goes by the username JXMY High Roller, Jimmy High Roller. Um, because in uh, uh, at at the end of March, he put out a video called "15 Facts About the NBA That May Just Blow Your Mind," and the one that I'm about to share not only is it pertinent to the Westbrook debate, but it's just it it will blow your mind. And so we thank you, Mr. High Roller, for 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 digging up this gem and sharing it with the general community. Uh, on YouTube, but this really comes down to not just the idea of points scored or raw numbers on a stat sheet, but it is points generated, which is a combination of a points that a player personally scored 
and a and the points that the player makes possible by making assists. It's those two things put together, right? Because obviously, if you assisted on on a basket, you were involved in the generation of those points. And mm-hmm. and Russell Westbrook, despite like Russell Westbrook is 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 in his mid thirties. He's not. It's no spring chicken, right? <laughs> anymore. He is. He's in the back half of his career. He is 32 years of age, and but even so, with that said in mind, all of those triple doubles, the 184 triple doubles he's had, has led to a total of 38,820 points generated. Now that's pretty darn good. It, it's better than James Harden. It's better than Shaquille O'Neal. It's better than Kevin Garnett. It's very close to Dirk Nowitzki, some all-time great players. And so, like you said, he's a, Westbrook's a talented player. He tries very hard, and he put up the numbers. But I think that when you, if you want to call him overrated, which is, I feel like that word's bandied about a little bit too much in the sports world, but nonetheless, if you want to actually look at, at the facts here, we first of all, I want to bring in a couple other players. First one's Chris Paul. Mm-hmm. Who is a great point guard in his own right, much more of a traditional point guard than a an athlete who wants to be a center at six foot three in the NBA. Right. Uh, Chris Paul is, I believe, 35, 36 years old. So he's not done yet, but he's also in the twilight of his career. And Chris Paul has generated 42,542 points compared to 38,820. Westbrook. Now, Paul has played a few more years, true, but when you also keep in mind that Westbrook holds the all-time record for triple doubles, Chris Paul does not even come close to that. No. And Chris Paul has generated roughly 4,000 more points without needing to pad the stat sheet like that. Yeah. That is very, very revealing, is it not? I believe so, and like it just shows you like Chris Paul as a playmaker is able to pass the ball and help create points more efficiently and more effectively than Westbrook is. And we all know that Westbrook is much more of a scorer than uh, Chris Paul is. So like that definitely helped benefit Westbrook in this situation because if you're scoring more points, that means you're generating more points. So obviously that helps play into the stat a little bit. But with Chris Paul not being able to score at the level that Westbrook is while still being able to generate more points overall than he was, I think shows you how efficient and effective Chris Paul can be on a good team compared to what Westbrook has to be on any team. And just to put a nice pretty bow on this particular point, there's another player that you might have heard of out there that is relevant in this conversation. His name's LeBron James. Mm-hmm. And get ready for this. Love him or hate him. Like, I understand he's a polarizing player. He has been to 10 finals and lost six of them. Maybe he flops too much, blah, blah, blah. We're not here to talk about any of those things right now. But LeBron James has generated 56,682 points, mm-hmm. which is... 4,000 plus ahead of second place John Stockton in the 52,900 range and leagues ahead of anyone else that has ever played in the NBA. LeBron James has only 99 triple doubles, air quote, only 99 triple doubles. 
and again, he's also played more years than than Westbrook, but I don't think these numbers in this case lie. The discrepancy is just too extreme, mm-hmm. and LeBron James has proven to be freakishly good at helping his basketball team score points, whereas Westbrook is, despite holding that triple-double record, is significantly less good at that. I would, I would make that argument, and... For me personally, like, you could double Westbrook's career, and he still wouldn't be close, right? Like, like Westbrook's points generated double it, and you're at, what, 4,500 if that? So you're still well off of what LeBron has already. So I, I don't think that Westbrook plays winning basketball, and I think, like, that's not necessarily Westbrook's fault in the fact that he was always playing this way and that's how he was taught to play. But, man, I, I think that he's a, a special player that has absolutely no value when it comes to winning championships. And I personally value championships more than individual accomplishments. And, like, I personally think that... It, I would take a player that can help me win a championship over a superstar any day. And I don't want Westbrook on my basketball team because I don't think he can help contribute to winning. You know what? That's a, I think that's a fair argument given given some of the numbers here. Now, for me personally, the jury's still out a little bit on Westbrook. I, I'll admit I like measurables and stats just because they're fun, just because it's fun to watch guys put up big numbers and you go like, wow, how did he he do that, but it's equally true that Westbrook has never uh, won a championship, and he has never really helped his team get particularly close mm-hmm. to an NBA Finals, and so I just think that, I mean, it's, yeah. He was with Oklahoma City, but that team had Durant leading it, It also had Serge Ibaka Absolutely. and James Harden off the bench. I, like, Westbrook was, he was often considered to be, like, the second best player in Oklahoma City, but... The way that he played the game of basketball, it wasn't conducive to winning. Honestly, I don't think that if that team stayed the way it was, with Westbrook leading the charge, that that team would have won a championship. I'm not sure if they could have. Maybe Kevin Durant and James Harden and Baca and Westbrook could have figured it out, but not the way that Westbrook plays basketball right now. And once again, the Washington Wizards find themselves in deep in the playoffs. Their last outing was a 120-95 to loss to the Philadelphia 76ers. And certainly didn't help that Westbrook rolled his ankle in the first game of that series. But it looks like once again that uh, Westbrook is going to finish a spectacular statistical season with, with shall we say, not getting particularly close Under, to, to an NBA final. Underwhelming playoff. Underwhelming. Uh, playoff expect like underwhelming playoff performances and I think that's kind of his career is that he'll always be a stat like a, a statistician's a dream in the regular season and then in the playoffs he won't be able to do much now speaking of underwhelming playoff performances in the basketball world so exhibit a the Los Angeles Clippers now for those of you that that need a memory jog here. The LA Clippers surrendered double-digit leads in games five, six, and seven of the 2020 Western Conference semifinals last year, and they lost the Denver Nuggets after going up 3-1 in that series in 
uh, one writer from The Athletic put it best, arguably the worst five-day stretch in the history of the franchise. Mm. It was painful, and I am not a Clippers fan, but I could only imagine the angst that that, that fan base probably felt uh, over that, that week. Mm-hmm. And certainly all eyes were on them going into this season. Uh, is Paul George going to be able to overcome pandemic Paul George, which we were treated to last year? You know, mm-hmm. is Kawhi Leonard going to be good enough? And more importantly, is the team going to be good enough as a unit to meet the lofty expectations placed upon them? So earlier this, this week and this Tuesday, the Clippers, who finished as the four seed in their conference, faced the number five Dallas Mavericks in game two of their first round matchup this year with a fan base very hungry for redemption to say the least. LA lost the first game 113 to 103 and they had another shot at the Mavericks on home court to boot to even things up. And Kawhi Leonard was Kawhi Leonard with 41 points shooting 14 of 21 from the field. Six rebounds, four assists, and two steals. Paul George was anything but pandemic P. He had 28 points and 12 rebounds for a very solid double-double, and he shot 12 of 22 from the field. And guess what, Tyson? The Clippers lost 127 to 121. And what ended up happening in that game is that Dallas went on a 24 to 10 run in the third quarter. Kawhi and Paul George were lighting it up in the first half. Kawhi had 30, Paul George had 17 in the first half, and it had mounted, uh, first of all, to just a two-point lead going into halftime, which is fairly worrying if both your stars are going off like that. Anyways, 24 to 10 run in the third quarter over about eight and a half minutes, and that was a lead that they never gave up Mm -hmm. over the course of that night. And yes, the Dallas Mavericks have a young superstar named Luka Doncic, Doncic, excuse me, who put up 39 points, 7 rebounds, and 7 assists that game. But his team also made a total of 18 three-pointers in that game. 17 in game one, but Tyson, I think worst of all for the Clippers is the fact that over the first two games this series, they have repeatedly failed to play solid defense. They've allowed Dallas players to cut past them for uncontested dunks and drives and layups on a regular basis. On many occasions, if you look back on uh, the game tape, Clipper players have seemed confused and unable to keep up with their rotations as their opponents routinely abuse them for easy and seemingly preventable (laughs) baskets. Now, for a team that's the oldest team in the league age-wise, and a team for which all of the newcomers they've added this year have at least a decade of NBA experience, this is inexcusable, frankly. Yeah, it it really is. And I mean, 121, 121 points for the Clippers should be good enough to win playoff games because oftentimes they boast that they have the two best wing guard defenders in the NBA in Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. But yet, Luka... And Patrick Beverly, who should be a very good 3 and D point as well. First team all defense, mm-hmm. right? So what's going wrong for the Clippers? They just simply can't guard Luka. And that's what's going on, and that's the problem, is that Luka is going off, he's hitting from three, he's hitting better from three than he did in the regular season, which is not something that the Clippers probably expected to happen. And Luka is still able to drive the basketball, get into where he needs to go to score good buckets. 
he's able to dish to Porzingis in in tight, in deep for those buckets down low. And Tim Hardaway, who is lighting it up yeah, from downtown as well. Exactly, and that's what happens when you have Luka who can't get, even with Kawhi or Paul George guarding him, he's too good that they need to double him because Kawhi can't handle Luka because he's just so much of an offensive threat. So that leaves guys like Tim Hardaway Jr. to He's left open, and now he can take open threes. The vast majority of the Mavericks threes that are being taken are open or uncontested threes. So when you have a ton of open and uncontested shots, the expectation is, is that you're going to hit most of them. So with Luka Doncic being able to be such effective scoring the basketball while also being able to generate points through Porzingis and through Tim Hardaway and through other guys on his team, it's leading the Clippers to have to deal with this mess offensively where they can't stop Luka, they have to double-team him, and then other guys are hitting open shots. And, and I think that's a good point, and to that I would add the fact that the Clippers cannot not be on the same page at, yeah. at this stage of, of the season. You have one opponent that you're going against, and like I said, this is an extremely seasoned, experienced team. Uh, a bunch of former all-defensive first-teamers, Leonard, George, Beverly, like we said, Serge Ibaka and Rajan Rondo as well are former NBA champions who at some point have been on that all-defensive first team and all-defensive second team and the fact that the Clippers starters have been outscored by 24 points in the first two games of the series which so far has been decided by a 16 point spread Mm -hmm. I think that as much as Luka Doncic is a superstar and as much as he is running the offense exceptionally well in Dallas right now the other part of the problem is that for whatever reason the LA Clippers don't seem to be in sync right now and that there's like there's just too much experience on this team. There's too much at least latent defensive ability on many of these players to be able to not just give things up, but give things up the way that they are giving up. And I can't help but think of how well-documented it was after last year's collapse. Kawhi and Paul George getting preferential treatment. Players disagreeing with each other, fighting with the with each other, with the, the coaching staff, not handling these conflicts well. And if the Clippers are are miscommunicating still in the first round of the playoffs, despite all this experience, it to me it to me indicates potentially a level of dysfunction within the organization that perhaps has not yet been addressed to the extent that it should. And if that is even a little bit true, it makes Luka Doncic's job that much easier to drive the basketball and set up his teammates. Absolutely. It really does. And that helps really with Porzingis as well because Porzingis, he's kind of been a a, a kind of an interesting player since he's gotten to Dallas. He was able to hit 20 points. He's gotten double-doubles this year. He's, He's been able to hit from three in this series, which is always good to see. And yeah, I think that ultimately if the Clippers can't figure out a way to stop Luka or to get on the same page defensively, then they're going to find themselves out of this series real fast. And like the Clippers, they haven't even made the conference final in their existence. So this would be extremely disappointing. And like you mentioned last year with all the problems that were going on with the team, 
that was a huge reason why Doc Rivers was fired in the season. Now he's coaching Philadelphia, and the Philadelphia 76ers look right. But if this doesn't work out, what is the next move in the offseason for the, for the Clippers? Like, if they don't come back from this series and, and win two games, three games, and, and force either a game seven or game six, like, what do you what do you do? Like, I don't know how you're supposed to move this along and fix this. The Clippers, they don't have any draft picks because they gave them all up to get Paul George on their team. I don't see them getting any players free agency because they spent all their money on Kawhi and guys like Serge Ibaka and... And George, of course. And Paul George and Rajon Rondo. So, like, where are the Clippers going to be getting better from from this iteration of the team? I don't know if it happens. This is kind of the best that they can be at this point. Uh, ultimately, hopefully, they can maybe do something in the offseason to maybe shake up the team. But if there's a core problem between chemistry-wise between Kawhi and Paul George and the rest of the team, I don't think they're going anywhere. And I'll tell you what, I'm glad I don't have to answer those questions that you just posed because the LA Clippers are not in a good spot right now and few teams have come back from down 2 nothing to win a series in the NBA. None have ever come back from down 3 nothing. And so the Clippers are again facing an uphill battle. And if they're not able to win on Friday night that game three, <laughs> then in all likelihood they may lose the series, barring something extremely unexpected. And unless that deus ex machina materializes to save them from whatever this is, like you said, mm-hmm. uh, there might be there might be some even harder questions asked this offseason versus the last offseason because clearly things are not working out the way that the head office expected when they put Kawhi Leonard together with Paul George. Now, with that being said, we also wanted to just talk a bit about the unusual playoff format that in the mm-hmm. NBA this year, and that's that's the play-in tournament, where some of the bottom seeds in each conference needed to play each other. Uh, I think I believe it was what was it, six through seven through ten. Yeah. Uh, right. They had to play one another for the right to fill out the eventual seven and eight seeds. I yes. believe in the playoffs, and. This was a bit of a polarizing idea. LeBron said that whoever came up with it needs to be fired, but (laughs) what do you think, Tyson? It's something the NBA has never done before. So I think that this is, this is, okay, here's my personal opinion, okay, is that I want to keep the regular season games as meaningful as they possibly can be. And I'm going to use the MLB to give you an example of what not to do, and then I'm going to talk about the NBA. So the MLB, they have 30 teams, and in each division, they can only have uh, four teams in the ALDS and NLDS, so the divisional round of the series. So what this effectively means is that they have three teams that make the playoffs in each conference, and then two teams that make the wild card. And then the two wild card teams play one game, and then that one game series goes into the uh, ALDS. So effectively what happens is, is that the top uh, five teams from each conference uh, make the playoffs in the Major League Baseball. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, and I've always found that to be a bit odd, given how Major League Baseball plays 162 regular season games, right. only to have a playoff format that's shorter than basketball and hockey. Right, so it's only 10 teams, and it's a 162-game regular season. So if by July you realize you're not a top 10 team in baseball, then essentially the rest of the regular season is about you preparing for next year. And that's something where I look at the Major League Baseball. This is I, I'm not sure if they've changed it, but this is how they used to be at least. That only allowing 10 teams into the playoffs and four of those teams get you know to play each other in only one game. So two teams that are of the 10 are eliminated after one game. Like, that's so exclusive that essentially if you're not a top 10, top 8 team, you don't really have a chance in the playoffs for baseball. So a lot of times in, this, in the teams that aren't as good, you know, there may be like the 15th or 12th best team. They're above average, but they're not a top 10 team, so they're not going to make the playoffs. That kind of leaves them in limbo. So... I don't, I don't like that format, but also when you look at the NBA, it used to be top eight from each conference makes the playoffs, so that's 16 out of 30 teams. That's more than half. And now that you have this play-in round, it effectively means that, like, 10 teams have a chance at making the playoffs in each conference. That's 20 out of 30 teams. That's two-thirds of the league can make the playoffs. And what we've seen in the NBA is that there are a lot of teams that like to do load management. The Raptors did this with Kawhi. The Lakers do this now with LeBron. If you have stars, you want to rest them sometimes because you understand that it doesn't matter if you get one, two, three, or fourth seed in the NBA playoffs. As long as you're in the playoffs, you got to beat who's ahead of you anyways. So even if the Lakers are the seventh seed, they're still the defending champs. They still have LeBron and AD but they needed to rest them because they had injuries and they needed to have that time off. So what it effectively means is that the regular season becomes meaningless for the best teams because they don't need to win every game. Right. They don't have to win every game. So whereas the, like the baseball doesn't have enough teams and that makes the regular season meaningless, the base basketball now with the playing round has too many teams that I think can make the playoffs and that also makes the regular season meaningless. So this is where I come to you and I look at uh, the NFL and the NHL models of playoffs, and I like that better because I think that it gives the most teams the maximum amount of uh, regular season that matters, but also having you know a good number of teams in the playoffs. Now, granted, I still don't like the anomalous dynamic between NFL divisions that occasionally allows a team to make the playoffs without even going 500. Yeah. I think that that's a conversation for another time, however. But I would, I think I, for the most part, I would agree with you, especially given the fact that in the NBA, there is less parity than the NHL to boot. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times, the seven and eight seats, kind of like you said with Oklahoma City, is just one of many examples back in the day they go out in the first round they go out in the second round and more often than not it's those top teams as long as they stay healthy that are that are competing for for the championship anyway whereas in the nhl there seems to be at least more parity so just like the 2012 la kings you can have an eighth seed come in and not only win the playoffs but dominate and in a way that no one thought that they would have expected so as much as it's great for all of these teams to make the playoffs and regret to the Toronto Raptors for not even being able to make that lower bar this year, the 
Raptors have a lot of things to work on, obviously, in the future, but that aside... The Tampa Raptors. This year didn't count. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Tampa Bay Raptors, who definitely uh, did not get any of the mojo that the Tampa Bay Lightning have right now, oh, yeah. but... Anyways, I you know my point is is that I, I think it was worth a try, but at the same time, I, I would agree uh, with your with your arguments at least in principle. And in addition to that, I would say that there doesn't appear to be enough parity in the NBA to to warrant having all these extra teams in the playoffs because the chances of these lower seeds making a deep run seem to be quite a bit rarer. Yeah. And I mean, like, good for the Grizzlies, for example, for getting into the playoffs. And, like, they were the ninth seed, and they were able to beat Oklahoma City to get into the playoffs. And they actually beat Utah in round one. So, you know, good for the Grizzlies, good for them. And and they got a good team there. They got JV. They got John Morant. They're, they're looking very good, mm-hmm. and they're looking very promising. One more time, Jonas Valsu Inawasas. Man, that's so – that was a bad pronunciation. But, yeah, but Jonas Valanciunas, good team, good players, but – you know, I think it's a matter of time before they lose to Utah because Utah's such a good team. But I, I don't, I don't necessarily like the plan. That's fair. And, and again, like I said, uh, I think it was worth a try. But why don't I think we can see what ends up happening in in the future and whether or not they go back to this or whether they try to change it up somehow. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I I personally don't have strong feelings for or against the play in. But I do think that it seems to be, it doesn't seem to be an idea with a great deal of upside given the overall situation of the NBA. Anyways, folks, that'll do it for for us here today at the Draft Board. We hope you guys are staying safe and enjoying the the embarrassment of riches as far as playoff sports (laughs) that is going on right now. And we hope that... Oh, well, we hope that we were able to be part of that conversation for y'all. So once again, for Tyson, I'm David, and we're signing off until next time from the Draft Board. Thank you for listening to the Draft Board podcast music intro and outro is produced by graham bass your hosts again are david song and tyson workington come back next week for more insight from the rink the turf and the court see you soon